0: And we're back, listeners, with So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I'm here with my super healthy friend, Mark Bigney, and we're going to give you the latest lowdown on board games. How are you today, Mark? Your information, as per usual, is woefully
1: incorrect. So very wrong about Mark's health. I am COVID positive. I'm certain about that and also positive about my COVID status. And as my father often says in his infinite wisdom, Son, you are a routine disappointment. No, wait, sorry. The other thing that he's frequently said was, no man has ever been so sick and lived, and yet here I am, dispensing my
0: false information over the internet for you, dear listeners. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic. We are once again in remote locations to keep everyone safe But we're here to give you a show. That's the dedication that
1: we promise you. Walker, we live in Kingston. We're always in a remote location.
0: (laughs) This is also true. So, first, we're going to talk about the games we played this week. Then we're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then our main review of the week, which is going to be Nadavalier and all of its expansions. Mark. What did you get to play this week? Ships, Walker. Many forms of ship. The first form
1: of ship that I got to play was I got to play a more demon ship. This is by Malav, who goes by Malav Dashinobi, published by Blacksite Studios. And Blacksite Studios is an interesting indie miniatures game manufacturer. They've done Don't Look Back, which is a horror-themed game. I've always wanted to try it, but never been in a position to. It's a very niche product. Demonship I first talked about last week And I was sufficiently engaged by the core gameplay elements That I returned to my twee copy as produced by the Hanverker By the way, parenthetical insertion here This is sort of a a news update in the middle We've had a number of inquiries about Who is this mysterious Hanverker? Is he indeed a tall drink of water? How can I procure his services? Well, as to those questions I can answer He's a friend of ours Absolutely he is And you cannot Uh, So if you're curious at all about some of these aliases that we use, you can go visit our website at sowronggames.com, and one of the options there is Dramatis Personae. We refer to people by aliases, and this is a contrivance so as to not need to get their consent to broadcast their activities on air, so this veneer of confidentiality is what gets us there. So the Hanverker is not a online service. The Hanverker is a local individual who was kind enough to gift me with my
0: copy of Demonship. You mean there's not like a light we can shine in the sky, like the Hanverker symbol, and then like <laughs> stuff will appear? No? Doesn't no, work I'm, that I'm, way? Unfortunately not, although that would be
1: awfully convenient. At any rate, uh, Demonship remains in, very engaging. and the, the trade-offs involved in what actions I must do and what the monsters are going to do in response are really quite cute. And I was nervous when I initially saw that every time you enter a room, it's randomized. And the goal of the game is to go to three different rooms in sequence, Uh, first to turn on the power and then to get the nav information and then finally launch an escape pod so as to escape safely from the aforementioned demon ship because it's not a place you want to hang around. But there are surprisingly simple ways to, to sort of zhuzh that die roll. For one thing... If you roll dupes that will tend to push you in the direction of the room you need to go, you can voluntarily take damage to alter the results of the roll in in ways that that further influences your tactical situations. I, I remain having a blast. It's just the right length. And in this context, I was able to rectify the pr- my previous complaint. My previous complaint was that, like many indie miniatures games, you need three or four different sets of tables that are all spread across the book and refer back to them constantly. In this instance, I was able to keep them all right in front of my face, and that, as, as a consequence, gameplay was extraordinarily smooth. The designer on Twitter commented that they have the intention of making a player aid. This has yet to be manifest. And quite frankly, I'm familiar somewhat with the general design and publishing scheduling of indie wargame designers, which is to say, don't hold your breath. This is not a specific... Uh, I'm not saying it's not going to happen, and this is not a specific vote of no confidence against Malib Da Shinobi. This is just a that, you know, it'll happen when it happens. Until then, I've been very pleased to use the workarounds that I've been using. Anyway, Demonship is a delight. It is exactly what I'm looking for in a solo game in that the AI is manipulable but not too predictable, and at the same time gives you a challenge that is responsive to the things that you are doing, and so offers a a lovely context for these decisions and trade-offs you're doing. And as well as that, it has an excellent design aesthetic in that it is just these series of six inch rooms six inch by six inch and so you really don't need much table space set up as a breeze regardless of whether or not it is printed in full size or whether it is printed the recommended uh, uh, Hanwerker scale which is 15 millimeter, and at that point everything becomes delightfully twee some people swear by 15mm. I confess I can see a lot of the appeal, but I don't object to the fact that the majority of wargaming tends to be either in uh, tends to be in 28mm with some exceptions for 6mm in some contexts anyway. I've been having a a great deal of fun with Demonship as a solo miniatures war game. I highly recommend it for anyone wanting to take a look, and especially if you have material that you can already use to kitbash, and or if you have access to a 3D printer, it's not going to break the bank in terms of your overall resin requirements. And so Demonship has been routinely enjoyable. That's, once again, Demonship by Malo Shinobi, published by Blacksite Studios this year, 2023.
0: So some more ships that you were talking about would be Space Base. We played Space Base on Board Game Arena. This is designed by John D. Clare and put out by AEG. The uh, implementation on Board Game Arena was developed by Gumby's, and it's maintained by Shazpa. And it's very much like a Machi Koro type game. You are collecting ships numbered 1 through 12. The dice are rolled, and you're either choosing you know one of the dice faces or adding them together and there's some differences in the cards whether you know you get it when your opponents roll it or when you roll it and you're collecting money and you're upgrading your cards and you're creating an income so in case you know a roll is bad you're going to get a base income every time and it is what it is you (laughs) you, we were rolling dice we are this is to say there it does generate table talk there is much thanks when a die roll is given there is groans there is there is interaction at least it generates that does it generate as much discussion as much interest
1: and as much engagement as roll a six when a cookie no there's much more enjoyment you said much more payoff with, yeah that's with... the standard I mean it's a joke it's entirely a joke but sometimes it's only half a joke. And yeah, it's fun to roll dice. It's fun to want the dice to be a certain result, and groan when they're not, and laugh when I mean, I'm sure. I'll express a certain degree of confidence here. Space Base has enough fans, some of whom, uh, whose opinions I, I genuinely trust and respect, that I'm sure that the way I play Space Base is the equivalent of big money in Dominion. Right, I make this analogy all the time. Big money in Dominion is a very boring but very effective way to play if everyone else is kind of messing around in the sandbox. You know, It's like just buying random action cards just to see what they do. Big money will trounce those individuals. But big money is a very boring way to play. I play space-base space, big money. I play space-base space, and I look at numbers 1 to 6 and I buy ships from 1 to 6 that give me victory points. And that's all I do every time. I have won space Base by large margins every time I've played. Granted, I am sure that there are experienced space Base players who are able to say, it's like, okay, well, you, what you do is you get the 7-ship, and the 7-ship will clock these tokens, and then the next time someone rolls an 8, you can shift it up to the 10, and then, oh, and then something, fa- it's like, whatever. I ignore numbers 7 to 12. I ignore all the other icons, I get money. I get points. That's all I do in Space Base, and I just wait for the game to end because it plays itself. One serious advantage of the board game Marina implementation is that you can toggle a whole bunch of things that say, "Well, when there's an obvious best choice, take the obvious best choice." Rather than in real life, someone rolls a one and a four, and you look, okay, well, the one column will give me two dollars, and the th- Three column will give me one dollar, but the four column will give me four dollars. Oh, I guess I should take the four column. That may be a trivial calculation, but you're going to be doing it over a number of different number of combinations, dozens and dozens and dozens of times over your game of Space Base.
0: Board Game Arena will do it for you. It's just like when I was rolling the bowling balls down the down the freeway, right? You just let it go <laughs> and let the, and and watch the fun ensue. It's it's really quite fun. That's an interesting analogy, Walker. Yes. Random, destructive, weird analogy. Sure, thanks very much for that. Anyway,
1: (laughs) I have played Space Base in person a number of times. It is a game I only tolerate. Uh, I will veto it amongst people who will respect a veto, but amongst people that I don't know, and that is usually the context in which I played Space Base, it's like, oh, well, I, I really like this game, or this game looks cute, or whatever, at which point I'd bite my tongue, like, okay, let's play some Space Base. I really don't enjoy it. I, I do not enjoy Space Base, but on Board Game Arena, it is less painful than in other venues. Agreed. Because it automates all the non-decisions. And there are a lot of non-decisions in Space Base. <laughs> that is Space Base by John D. Claire and Alderac Entertainment. The last ships that I have to talk about this week are Snapships Tactics. I remain incredibly enthusiastic about the fundamental toyetic nature. Toyetic is a, is a special toy-related word. It means exactly what you think it means. And I wanted to try the solo version for two reasons. Number one, I am very sick. And number two, I was just curious about the AI system. As long-time listeners know, I have a number of requirements or at least preferences for AI systems. Number one, I wanted to replicate something approaching the decision-making in the real game. And number two, I wanted to be easily adjudicated. Because I don't want to be spending twice as much time adjudicating the AI as I'm adjudicating my own turns. And again, that's one of the things that Demon Ship does pretty well too. So the first thing that I did in Snapship's Tactics was I built my own ship. And again, when you say that in Snapship's Tactics, that, that takes on double meaning. First you f- design the components you want to have in your fighter based on the stats that are available. And then you physically build the thing. That took me about 15 minutes But it was a joy. I was playing with a toy. I was literally, I I still find enjoyable manipulating these physical toys. There's one thing that's a bit weird, and it's a discordance that I think will bother some people. It doesn't bother me. And that is that the so-called sort of default builds that the toy line presents are not legal builds in the game. They have roughly 150 to 200% of the components that would be legally outfitted on a single ship. And as a consequence, if you build your ship WYSIWYG, and that's what I did this time, what I did was I specifically, for both the AI ship and for the ship that I was building, I only put on the components that were actually represented in the game. They looked comparatively naked. The visual appeal of the specific ship was considerably lower than a sort of default off-the-rack toy uh, build. Uh, Is there a game virtue in having the ship be WYSIWYG? Like, the fact that... There are some extra fins and thrusters on the on the, sh- the the game component that are not represented by stat cards. Probably not. Did I derive us a, a particular puritanical joy at knowing that everything on the physical ship was represented game wise? I did. So you know the visual appeal was won over in terms of verisimilitude. Uh, did I just say verisimilitude in the context of snapshot tactics, Walker? You did. I think I might be I'm ill. It
0: fits with a toy. I think. I think that goes. Hand in hand.
1: Fair enough. So I had a blast building it. I loved sitting there, build, build, tearing apart the previous version, building up the new one, finding the specific components. Like, ooh, this thruster came in the Wasp ship. Ooh, I'll go take that and put it... Anyway, I had a delight doing that, and then I played the actual game, and it was fun, too. The AI does not really represent the way a normal ship would work, but nonetheless, it gives you context in which to make your own decision-making that feels like the normal game. You are managing your power, managing your heat, managing what systems to do, managing risk, deciding what to do with the missiles that are tailing you, do you head into the asteroid field, do you waste some weapon fire to try to shoot down the missiles, etc., etc. You know, it's not the deepest thing in the world, but it doesn't have to be. It gives you the necessary context and contours to play with the toy that you've already been playing with, and I find the decision-making to be passable. In the context, then, of the visual and tactile appeal of this product, I think Snapships Tactics is a winner. I really, really hope that they continue to support the line. There are toys that are not yet represented in the in the actual game. I hope that the toy line continues as well. If I didn't already have a whole bunch of display toys already, yes, I'm that kind of man, which I'm sure doesn't shock any of you, I would get more Snapships. If I had more shelf space available for toys, I would get more Snapships. As it is, they live in the game box. So this is one of those rare Kickstarters that you uh, that you pledge thinking it's going to be absolute dreck, and th- this was not based on any skepticism about the specific designer. I didn't know at the time that the designer Joss Dirksen was involved in a variety of X-wing communities and had a had a bit of a a, pe- a pedigree attached to him. But I had zero expectations for the gameplay of Snapshot Tactics, and so far in my playings, I have been very pleasantly surprised in that it is a reasonable set of decision-making encounters. So that coupled with the, the joy of actually assembling these things and the sheer delight of the, the visual impact of customizing these ships, uh, I think Ships Tactics is absolutely worth your time and attention if that's the kind of thing you're into. I realize that's a very
0: big if, but there we go. So that's Ships Tactics for you. I'm very pleased. Mark, 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 we have tons more ships. I don't know why you said that was your last ship. We've got lots more ships. Oh, I'm very we, sorry. We played Nar. Oh, you're right. Uh, so that's Viking ships. We played that on Board Game Arena as well. The The uh, designer of that implementation, is his name is Thun. The actual game is designed by Thomas De Point. He was the same designer of Rush Out and Denia, which I both enjoyed. And it's published by Bombex. So in Gnar, I've talked about it before. I'm going to be interested to see what Mark says about it. You're sort of running two engines in a way you have your you have two different sort of tableau engines you have these uh, rows of like colored vikings that when you play new cards with them you run the whole line and then when you acquire enough trading material you can trade i guess with trade routes which you can also purchase with these cards and you get to run those lines as well to generate victory points and other things and it has this also sort of economy that you can build up as well i i I'm enjoying almost every play with it. I'm hoping that you're not sort of uh, not deceived, but you got maybe ruined because it was asynchronous. I think it will fly a lot quicker and faster in person. And I'm really interested to see that. So I'm looking forward to it in, in real life. But what did you think of your one playing of NAR?
1: I really enjoyed it. I think Nar is. It, are you ready for this? I think it's gnarly.
0: <laughs> Ooh. Uh, yeah, I don't know. That,
1: that was. I, I actually make the comparison because in much the same way that the G in gnarly is silent, uh, there's a K at the the top of of Nar, which is silent. I think it was hiding between the G and the H of through. Anyway, Nar is, as you say, a very interesting set of competing economies, despite the fact that it is a very very brief game. You you have a very small number of turns. There's this constant trade-off of building up these huge columns of light-colored Vikings and then cashing them in for these high-value victory point cards, which in turn feed that other economy. The trade-off between the two different kinds of economies wasn't – it's there and it's, and it's interesting. The most interesting trade-offs I find in NAR are actually deciding when to pull the trigger and cash in your Vikings, which weakens your economy, to buy victory points. That's the part that I find more interesting because those are the two fundamental things you can do in your turn. Either play a card, which if you've been careful and is added to a very, very fat stack of the same colors can reap increasing dividends. Although some economies have uh, some resources have a hard cap, which encourages you to then go do the other thing, which is to say, cash in some of those Vikings, starting with crucially the most recent ones you've played. So you don't even have much discretion there, which is an interesting uh, constraint, To then go buy these cards that can either give you points or then there are cheaper ones that mostly just feed into that other form of economy. Anyway, it's a very, very, very simple game. It's incredibly easy to internalize what's going on. It's got a very narrow range of iconography. And so all told, it's extremely approachable. And it's got very, very high quality art. I really quite liked the portraits on the Viking cards uh, considerably. The color palette is great. And I thought that the trade-offs were very, very difficult and interesting. There's one simple thing that I'd like to highlight. There are a whole bunch of simple things on Gnar that just build up to a very, very pleasant experience. And one of them is, you have a very small hand, and at the end of your turn, if you've played a card, you then draw a new card. Well, normally, in a, a the, the simple way to do it is just have a certain number of cards face up, pull the one you want. In Nar. You can take the one that you want if you pay a resource. If you don't pay a resource, you're going to be stipulated to draw a certain card based on what color of card you played. And I found myself in a position where I had this this fat stack of reds. You had a fat stack of purples, as I recall. And I constantly wanted more red cards. But in order to get more red cards, I'd have to play cards that I didn't want to play or give up a valuable resource. That trade-off, too. So in an incredibly simple game where all you're doing is playing a card and pulling a new one, you have these incredibly difficult trade-offs and economic decisions, both short and long-term, to do. Well, long-term. I don't. I, I think long term in NAR is a bit of an exaggeration. Medium term, maybe at best. It's a it's a sprint to forty points, and it's going to go by in a, a heartbeat. But all of this is to the game's credit. I think DuPont has done a marvelous, marvelous job. NAR is great. I can't wait for it to come out in physical version. The publishers say ideally sometime around Essen, so possibly in a couple months, we'll see. But once it comes out in the physical edition, I, I want to snap it up immediately. I'm, I, I've completely fallen in love with NAR. I think it's a marvelous, marvelous lightweight Euro.
0: Well, I'm happy then. Thank you for introducing me to it. Nice. So now what? Now for a game that is probably our last ship game. We got to play Quantum today. This is designed by Eric Zimmerman and put out by Funforge. We played it on Board Game Arena as well. Uh, the people that are in charge of this implementation are Pierre Steels, Pikachu uh Lucas, who's crawler, and Bruce Webster, aka Idesky. And I don't know what to say about quantum. It is a joy every time I play it. I can play quantum every day. It is I play it terribly, but it is this <laughs> it is this you you can see the puzzle there. You're looking at the board and you realize that someone much smarter would figure out something so cool to do on their turn. And it's like, no, I'll just move all my ships and then do nothing. But, but, you, but you have a feeling something really cool could happen if you had half a brain. Quantum has a rather serious
1: first player turn advantage or earlier in earlier player turn advantage because it's one of those games where the moment you satisfy your victory condition the game ends hardcore and it is absolutely the case that frequently in players of equal skill you're going to end up in a situation where everyone could have won on their next turn it absolutely has a tremendous amount of luck in the in the dice rolls because although you're rolling lots of dice some of the high consequential dice effects are going to be in combat, and there you don't roll a whole lot of those, even when there's a lot of fighting. And I, when playing Quantum, I can appreciate these things intellectually, and I just don't care. Because it is absolutely, as you say, it's a joyous experience. It is a marvelous distillation of the Forex genre. There have been a large number of of really good distillation of more sprawling game types you know i think of of distillations of the civilization genre particularly in terms of the imperium games which themselves are are, are pretty dense rules wise especially for deck builders but i think of the distillation of 4x type of games experience and i think of imperium the contention and i think of quantum but quantum of course predates all of this right back uh, it's a 10 year old game And there, the idea of doing a highly, highly condensed 4X-y type of thing in a space context was not as well-traveled a design space as it is now. And so Quantum was really, really ahead of its time, I think, because you have the special technologies, you've got special action cards, you have the notion of expanding your territory and trying to even a small amount of exploiting. There's no economy per se, but nonetheless, there is advantage in being able to tactically position where you relaunch your ships and you're drowning in special abilities and fun tactical puzzles and maximizing everything. Yeah, Quantum's incredibly great. It's sadly very out of print, and there's no indication that it's going to be reprinted anytime soon. But it is available in an excellent adaptation on Board Game and so I highly encourage everyone to go give it a try if you haven't already, because you can try it for free.
0: Yeah, Quantum's marvelous.
1: You're right, Walker. It was ships all the way down. I didn't appreciate it.
0: It was ships all the way. I have a few more to talk about. This go for it, gonna Walker. A, this one's going to be a little long, because Mark, I finally... Technically... I think is my shelf of shame is gone. I'm not Ooh. including like giant campaign games and or giant multiplayer like War Room is still on the shelf. I have nothing. <laughs> or Frosthaven. Not counting those. So Orleans Stories finally got played. And Orleans Stories is a very odd game. It it plays very much like Orleans, except there's other things going on. You have this era uh track that that players are going up and they can go up that error track in, in different orders. And so you have goals to go up the error track and you also have this recipe fulfillment card, uh, pad that you're going to be filling out for victory. And it very much is sort of that, you know, the beneficial deeds in, in Orleans where you sort of call your bag out and it goes out to that other board. Orlean Stories leans very heavily into that. You are constantly shifting your bag in different ways because a lot of that recipe fulfillment is sending you guys to the beneficial deeds. In order to go up on the errors, you have to send one to someone to the beneficial deeds. And that gets into some trouble as well, which is very interesting because sometimes you don't have the actual types of characters descend there so you have to manipulate your bag to get the characters to go to the beneficial deeds it's very interesting it's just very long so instead of having a map of orleans that you're traveling around it has this sort of countryside that you have all of these different food plantations that you're going to slowly take over for like cheese and wine and income to your into your tableau so you can sort of run other engines and you're building churches, you're building villages which flip over the the food production so you don't get that anymore. But instead of going up the book track on the bottom, there's this sort of fame track around the outside of the board. And the only reason you're going up that, because on your checklist, you have to I think it's like twenty-two citizens that you have to cross off by the end of the game. And so as you f- zoom around this fame track through uh through multiple re like at the end of every turn, depending on how many villages you have or depending on what era it is, there's like a end of round goal. Right. And so you're going to get a certain number of fame points. And every time you build a building, you go fame points. Anyway, as you can hear, it goes very long and there's some eras that the eras will dictate how many tokens you're going to be pulling in your bag. And a few of the eras are like four citizens It gets just so tedious and painful. And so we played the very first, there's two main scenarios that come in Orleans. We played the first one. I think I've convinced uh, Huey to play the second one just so we can have them both played. It's not that it wasn't fun. It had that Orleans feel. It just felt too long. It felt as though they just took what was fun of Orleans and changed it in a way that was not as good. The Lords of Ragnarok it. Yes, we just said the same thing. It's like, why would we play this when we can play Orleans? Right. That's too bad. I think I'll stop there. It is designed by the same Reiner Stockhausen, the same designer of Orleans, and published by DLP Games. More about Orleans in the news coming up. Next game is a game from Mandu Games, and they're really killing it in the trick-taking games that I'm enjoying lately. They put out a game called Jekyll and Hyde that I really enjoyed, where it's like this sort of floating Trump system, like mid-round the Trump will change, and you have to sort of change your gameplay in that way. They put out another game, which is Jekyll and Hyde versus Scotland Yard, which turns out into co-op. I haven't had a chance to try that, but I very much want to. But right now on Board Game Arena they have a game called Dracula versus Van Helsing. This the implementation on Board Game Arena is designed by Moof, which I just found out who is an actual game designer is Fabian Reichfold. I hope I pronounce that somewhat close. He is uh he's the designer of Grizzled, all the Grizzled stuff and he also designed a game I really much want to play is Catch the Moon, which is that game we know where you uh stack all the ladders and try to the dexterity game with the ladders. Oh yeah, Catch the Moon's great. Yeah, yeah, I still want to try. I haven't had a chance to try it. I want to try that. So so in Van uh vs. Van Helsing, it is a game where you both have card trays and so your cards are facing you, but they're in a tray because in the middle of the table is sort of a map of a of a city and all the cards sort of line up with a district. And there's four citizens in every district and So the system is on your turn, you draw a card and either you're switching it with a card in your hand or you're discarding it. So regardless of what you do with it, the card that is discarded uh, will trigger its special power and they have all sorts of different special powers where you get to reveal some of the, your opponent's cards or you get to shift around cards or you get to manipulate the trump and then what you're trying to do is once uh there's at least six cards in the discard pile you're allowed to trigger the end of the game end of that round so you can just say i declare the end of the round the other person gets one more turn and then you start you turn over the cards, you know, facing each other one by one. And so you're trying to win each of the district's tricks. Interesting. If, if Dracula wins, he turns one of the four citizens into a vampire. If Van Helsing wins, he does damage to uh, Dracula. So Dracula has a certain number of hit points. And if, and if they're all gone, of course he loses. And if he turns all four citizens in a certain district to vampires, then Dracula wins. man, yet another fantastic trick-taking game it sounds intriguing really neat give it a try it's on board game arena dracula versus van helsing and lastly for me we streamed caverna one not one last time but one more time this week and this time we use the expansion which is frantic fiends and this one will you cannot play it with the first expansion which is uh the forgotten folk which gives everyone a, a a unique race this you play with the dwarves again and now a bunch of orcs are attacking uh it was supposed to be a cooperative game uh expansion at first but it is all sort of everyone's board has their own orcs and there are four sort of orc phases throughout the game and that's going to move them around your board and destroy everything that they move on to and if they get into your cave they can even stop you from placing workers and so you can send you can set out a bunch of traps to destroy them or you can when you send your dwarves on the sort of adventures you can also attack the orcs that way so when you attack them you get benefits or you can put out what they call holding traps and you can capture the orcs and therefore you can put them to work as workers so that's somewhat interesting as well, a different way to get workers and they can only collect uh, resources. They don't get to do anything else that's funky on the square. <laughs> all in all, it just seemed like a whole bunch of added stuff, much like, you know, Orlean stories. It, it turned into much more of a, like a agricula, much more tight, much more painful, much more, you know, just, you know, dreary, not as, <laughs> not as enjoyable experience as just, you know, caverna with forgotten folk. it has hence been put on the very bottom of the box. I really don't think we're going to return to it. It's not as though it's like, you know, difficult to add on or anything. It's just, you know, extra steps that, you know, those four phases of everyone flipping cards to move like three different orcs around their, their forest Mm. was a bit much anyway. And caverna is already long as it is. So a little disappointing, it would be very much interesting if it was sort of like the Orleans cooperative version where everyone's sort of working together to try to, you know, get their boards up to par to try to, you know, start sending resources to try to fight the orcs as a group. I think that would have been very interesting. But anyway, frantic fiends will stay at the bottom of the box for quite a while, I believe. And what is with this naming
1: convention? It's like the expansions were designed by Friedman Fries or something.
0: Yeah, it is very
1: odd. I think it's a translation problem. Could well be. Sorry you didn't like the second expansion, but I, I agree with you. If you're going to make it simultaneously more cumbersome and more tight, why not just go to Agricola and have the tightness without the cumbersome
0: extra rules? More on Agricola in just a moment in the news... Well, then. So, those are the games we played this week. Now, for a quick break while we pay tribute to our advertisers.
1: And we're back. And now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So, Walker, there is a combo deck-building game called After Us, which is about apes who have inherited a post-apocalyptic Earth. Yes, I talked about this quite a while ago. Yes, I know. And at the time, I didn't know that they were going to be engaged in Gibbon Erasure. Ooh! There are no Gibbons in After Us, Walker. There are mandrills, there are gorillas, inferior apes. There, I said it. You cannot exclude gibbons if there are no gibbons. Hashtag
0: no gibbons, no sale. Oh, wait, there could be an expansion already in the works, like Revenge of the Gibbons.
1: Well, look, until until that time comes, After Us will remain woefully incomplete. That is my view on the matter. There's been some spielcast lately in the news. What with the release of Disney Lorcana? have you seen any talk about this online, Walker? I have. I, I just have so little interest in it. I don't <laughs> care. I find it interesting from an economic perspective. Uh, so, miniature market amongst amongst other retailers uh, was starting was selling it online at double MSRP. And my question was, well, what is the MSRP? I've been out of CCGs for so long. I literally have no conception about how the economies of scale work. Uh, basically, the uh, the MSRP of a Magic the Gathering booster is uh, five American dollars, and for this you receive fifteen cards. Now I don't, you know, v- varying rarity distribution. Lorcanah, however, is going to charge you six for twelve. This is uh, an in- this is an increase of fifty percent. So that's I guess that's what a license costs you. I was supposed to say the same. It's licensing fees, Mark. Yeah, you know, I don't know.
0: Maus, that's that's big. Big bucks right there. It's just
1: a whole bunch of Lorcana defenders have been saying, wait until it enters general production, then the prices will fall. I I'm sure that's the case. Uh yeah, but, but is it miniature market regular distribution? Uh well it is, kind of, but this is the immediate post launch period. I don't know what normal inflationary pressures uh, how, how that hits other CCGs. And I agree with you that, that that that's what a number of people are complaining. I'm not going to defend or condemn uh, miniature markets specifically.
0: Just, just let me. I just got to look this up online for a second. There's a word I'm trying to think of. It's gouging. That's it.
1: Okay. <laughs> I'm more curious about the MSRP, to be frank because gouging is going to be what gouging is whenever there's some sort of artificial scarcity, of course. Of course, CCGs are built on artificial scarcity from the the ground up. Anyway, I just find this uh, this interesting. $6 for 12 cards sounds like an awful lot to me. That's only
0: 50 cents each. It's fine.
1: Sure, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. Anyway, I'm just going to be looking at it from afar, uh, because I, too, have no interest in getting into a CCG, much less based on a license that uh, apparently... Is inflating the costs and also holds no interest for me. So I'm just saying that there's a lot of discussion and a lot of intense feelings about the early launch of Disney Lorcana and about who is trying to exploit whom.
0: Consume. Obey. Capitalism. <laughs> All right. So, Mark, I was talking about Orleans. They have announced another big box. I love Orleans. This one is interesting because of many things. It's called The Plague. This will be the third large expansion. And it's interesting because there are many third-party companies that have made uh, the tokens that go in the bag. And this expansion is going to increase the number of those tokens that go in the bag. So all of these people that have third-party things are now maybe in a little bit of trouble when this expansion comes out. We'll see. Not even third-party my man. We're talking about different first-party editions. This is true. No, the actual, actual DLP themselves have three different tokens that you can use in Orleans, the original cardboard, they have their wooden deluxe set, and they also have a deluxified meeple set that you can buy from them as well. And then we have the board game geek set. We have the meeple one. There, Anyway, tons of different ones. Now there are these corpse tokens you're going to be putting in your bag. Ugh. I thought that was fantastic. You know, you're reaching in are pulling like, nope, dead, dead, dead. Okay, well, <laughs> I think it's going to be great. I can't wait for it. Uh, is that a good funny story? It's a funny story. I said, "Oh, I'll look it up. You know the DLP website in Germany and see. Oh, it's only twenty one dollars. You know, I will I'll just, you know, I'll throw that in the cart. I'm sure shipping won't be that, that much. <laughs> uh, one hundred and seven dollars shipping. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll wait. <laughs> yep, sounds like a good call. On the
1: topic of international shipping. Uh, We have a Patreon. And one of the benefits you can get from our Patreon is to our commissioners and overlords, we send out games. And uh, I confess, uh, full disclosure, if you are waiting on a game for me, I apologize. I cannot go to a post office because I might kill someone. So there's a bit of a delay on that, but nonetheless, what there is no delay for is access to the Patreon-exclusive Discord, you get access to ad-free episodes, you get access to, at various tiers, our mountain of Patreon-exclusive content. We average about one Patreon-exclusive episode a week. We have Bloat, we have Sizzler, a lot of people talking about Sizzler, a lot of people are very pro-Sizzler, so very wrong about all the games you look at bad. Many, many other shows, and of course, the incomparable Pledge of Indifference edited by the very finest of Swag Gibbons. So if you're at all interested, go check us out on patreon.com slash swag. We would love to have your support. And indeed, this episode is
0: sponsored, like all our episodes, by our dear patrons, whom we adore. So Mark, we talked about Agricola 15 being odd and maybe not having enough components. I've, I've got another great experience with Agricola 15 today because I thought, you know, I really want the purple pieces because I have the purple figures, so I'm going to order the five, six-player expansion. That way I'll have all the cards, and I'm sure it comes with, you know, you'd think it would come with my purple pieces, but no, Mark. You see, (laughs) they've decided to put different colors in the Agricola 15 than they did in the revised edition. You see, because you get purple in the revised edition just normally. Ah. And so in this five, six-player revised expansion, I got yellow and green, which I already have in my Agricola 15. So there you go. Oh
1: my goodness. Oh, that's terrible. Why did they do it that way? Why are you being Uh, punished for buying their deluxe version Walker?
0: Yeah, I'm, I am not sure. I I can only blame myself. I should have really looked a little closer at the five, six player expansion and see, and, and looked at what colors it came with. But, but I guess that's my own fault. Answer me this. Does it at least come with more resources? No, no. It just comes with the oh, boy. Extra, extra boards, the cards, and the pieces. No more resources. So the fact that we ran out of
1: resources in a four-player game means that if, if we were foolish enough to play a five- or six-player game, we'd run out of resources that much sooner. And indeed, you don't even have the player components. Well, they, we'd have to play with the same colors, redundant colors, that other people already have in order to play that player count. All because... You purchased not the normal base game, but the Agricola fifteen, much more expensive version. Am I correct? Exactly, you're
0: correct. And you okay. think I could have? You think I could have lucked out and maybe one of the expansion colors that I got repeated would have been red? See, now I was shorted red pieces in the <laughs> <Yeah>. Agricola fifteen. <laughs> oh, it just getting better and no, better. No such luck. Okay, Agricola fifteen. <laughs>
1: Yeah, uh, I I think this is definitely the case now that if you want to buy Agricola, do not buy the Agricola 15 edition. Just don't. It's really not a good idea. The base version is so much better. Or better yet, buy the previous printing that went up to five players all by itself.
0: Go to town. Live your best life. Yeah, it all depends, I guess, what you want. It does come with all of the cards. Special fantasy cards and all the hard-to-get promos and stuff. Yeah, yeah, the weird
1: outre promos that make the game strange. Sure, sure. It's true. I Just I, saying. Was it a price worth paying walker? Do you, No. Okay. Finally for me, uh, a little bit of a shout-out to another podcast. Uh, some of you may be familiar with the podcast, the Judge John Hodgman podcast. John Hodgman is an author uh, whom I, I very much enjoy, and he runs a sort of fake internet court. In episode two, uh, 630... There is none other than Howie. Howie is the voice that serenades you at the beginning of every episode of So Very Wrong About Games. He is the front of What Does It Eat, the band that has provided our theme song, and Howie can be seen on episode 630 of John John Hodgman,
0: so go check him out there. Next Saturday, we usually stream. We're going to start half an hour early. We're going to give away eight first printing with the original artwork of Regicide. We're going to have a board game trivia before the stream starts. So head over to Twitch. You can get all the information for our Twitch channel on our website. It's going to start at 12 p.m. Eastern next Saturday. And that's the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to our main review, which is Nadavalier.
1: Now, Davelier was designed by Serge Léger and published in 2020 by, I do not know how to say this publisher name, Grr Games? Grree Games? Grr! It's G followed by many R's and E in all caps, so I guess I should be saying it with more intensity, but I assure you my voice is not up to the task. It was followed up by an expansion that same year called Thingvelier, and another expansion two years later called Eidevol. This is designed as, as I mentioned by the Estimable Serge Leger, who sadly passed away in January of this year. Serge Leger is responsible for such games as Shadows Over Camelot, as well as co-designing a, a whole bunch of other games with his frequent collaborator, Bruno Catala, including a swag favorite, Senji, which is probably one of the finest Troops on a Map game games ever designed. Uh, but he also solo designed Marinostrum, and was a very, very talented designer in his own right, as well as collaborating frequently with other French designers. So, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in the Davalier?
0: Well, you're mostly just screaming in rage, Mark, as your (laughs) opponents take the cards that you want, and you question them why they wanted that orange card. They don't even have any orange. They're not even going to get a hero with that orange card, and you just needed that one freaking orange card. Walker, you say
1: that, but you... all The, the path of orange is one of excess and specialization. When you it's walk true. the path of orange, you never want one more orange. You want all of the oranges all the time. It's true.
0: This is what I'm about to say next, is in Nevalir, you're, you're building an army, and they all come in all sorts of different colors, and so you can generalize, or you can, like we just talked about, risk it, and go all in on a certain color, and... and and hope that no one else will take your cards and you can score big in that one color. So we've played Nadavalir a
1: whole bunch. We've talked about it a bunch in the podcast, and there's a reason why I wanted to revisit it. This was a selfish desire on my part, because I tr- I, I actually gave away Nadavalir and Thingvalir to a patron. I have some structural problems with with, with uh, the the game that we'll get into in, in due time, but I'd never tried the expansion Eidavolt. I assumed, perhaps irrationally, that it was going to alter the base game no more or in much the same way that Thingvellir did, but I can say I was very, very pleasantly surprised by the effect that Eidavolt has on the overall experience of Dadavelir. Now, just a bit of a spoiler, I don't think it changes my overall opinion on whether or not one should acquire or play Nadavalier in person, but I will say that from a design perspective, it is awfully fascinating. And the core game of Nadavalier is, much like some of the expansions, kind of a study in contrast, because you have this marvelously simple bidding system that provides endless engagement and trade-offs, coupled with a relatively bland and unengaging scoring system. Because, as Walker said, you're building an army and they come in a variety of different colors. And they kind of have different scoring conditions, but not really, and not in an interesting way. It's one of the things that, it's, it's going to be a recurring complaint that I have about the entire line of Nadavalier products. When it is simple, sometimes it is too simple. And when it is complicated, sometimes it's complicated for, for not enough payoff. So, for example, just, just an example. Red and blue, your final score in red and blue are just going to be the sum of all your red and blue cards. Simple. Easily, easy, easy trade off. It's like, okay, well, do I want the six red or the eight red? Well, you want the eight red because the eight red is two more points. That's two more points than six, Walker. That's maths. Exactly. But then there's purple. Purple increases the number of points you get, but the kind of diminishing returns. Then there's green. Green increases, on the other hand, on a more triangular level. So the more you get, the higher it gets. And then there's gold, which you'll explain to people and they'll say, How does that work? And you'll explain two or three more times and they'll possibly remember how the math actually works. And this, ultimately, this diversity doesn't really lead to substantive interest. It kind of just leads to different mathiness in a vaguely unsatisfying way it's not a huge problem
0: but there it is and then and then correlates at the very end of the game where you actually have to sit and add all this up yeah right so like, like that painful boring scoring system now is that what you have to look forward to at the end of the game where you start now have to add all these different numbers up it sort of doubles down on that yeah.
1: Right. And the most interesting parts of Nadavalar, and I think this is true of, of pretty much the entire game, and this, this actually is increased by Idable for what it's worth, are the early rounds. Because they're driven by uncertainty about what's going to come up later. You don't really know where you're going to be going, and so you kind of have to remain flexible. And as well, the early rounds are when you you make your push for your heroes. More on heroes in a moment. But by the end of the game... You're sitting there, and you're looking. You're no longer engaged in. Well, I don't know how many purples are going to come out. Do I want to invest heavily in this color? No, no, no. You've made your de- decisions. You've pretty much made all your your substantive choices about what your tableau looks like. Are you going heavy into green? Well, you want all the greens you can get. Same thing for orange. If you're not heavily specialized in one of those weird payoff colors, you just want the highest value cards, and that's 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 the sum and substance of it. You're bidding on an eight point thing or a three point thing or what have you. At that point, it becomes brutally calculational and a lot of the steam has gone out of Nadavalir. And then, of course, you get to actually do the, the math if you're doing it in person, which is relatively painful. Now... Is the bidding system still relentlessly delightful? Absolutely. It's very cool. You get to increase your your bid values over the course of the game, not entirely unlike a deck builder. You have a zero bid that comes out, and when you do the zero bid, you get to increase the value of one of your bids going forward, and so everyone has a weirdly different economy by the end of Nadavalier, and that part's really cool. But what you're bidding on in the core game gets very dull very quickly, in my experience.
0: Yeah, so very quickly, in Endavilya, you have three different taverns, and they're going to be populated with as many cards as there are players, and then everyone's going to secretly uh, play three of their five coins to these three taverns, and then once everyone's played their bids or coins, then they're all flipped up, and whoever bid the highest gets to choose their card first and going down in descending order, And I think that is the favorite my most favorite part of the game is looking at all of the cards that are available, which taverns are most important, what ones can I win, what other coins people have. It's that same sort of feeling in Skull is when you look around the table, you see how many cards are out, and you're and you gotta pick that perfect opening bid. And I that's the part I enjoy about Nandavalier.
1: As far as blind bidding games go, it's really excellent. The blind bidding is is fabulous. The problem is that even in some early rounds, I look at a tavern and I see the four or five cards on offer and I I am utterly indifferent as to which ones are there.
0: And Which is which which is sometimes a good thing cuz that's where you'll throw your zero, right? So then you can use that that particular tavern to build up your coins cuz you don't care what you get out of that tavern.
1: Absolutely. But then, so in the best case scenario, you know, I'm indifferent as to one of the taverns. And then, so that basically means I'm only really bidding on a couple of others. Sometimes I just don't care about any of them, really. Because <laughs> if, if all you've got <clears throat> is the base game, and especially the early bits, so some of those early rounds, the bidding can feel a little inconsequential because you don't know where you're specializing yet. And then during the later rounds, the bidding becomes high stakes, but not interesting in terms of trade-offs, right? If I'm heavy into green and there's one tavern with three green on them, I don't care about that tavern. If there's another tavern with one green on them, well, i put my highest bid there. If there's another ta- tavern with no green, I might not care about that one either. I'm oversimplifying somewhat. But what I'm saying is, is that when you strip it down to, it, to its core game, and this is one of the reasons why I played in the for about half a dozen times and then moved on, was that the excellence of the bidding system... And the lovely potential of trade-offs in terms of upgrading your economy for future rounds was frequently let down by my looking at the tableau of cards and shrugging and saying, I don't really care about any of these.
0: Yeah, I don't want to say it's unfortunate about the expansions, but now that I've played the expansions, I would never play the base game by itself again. Whereas, you know, if I only knew about the base game, I might return to it once in a while and think, oh, you know, this very clever bidding system, it doesn't outstay its welcome, it's fine. But now that I've played these expansions, it's, man, this really ups the game in almost every way. Right. And I would I would compare
1: this unfavorably. Make no mistake, Nadavalier is very pleasant and it can pull double duty in in kind of the same way, but not nearly as well. As games like uh, Ethnos or Archaeo Society, you know, we talked about, you know, games that are e- easy to explain and can satisfy gamers as well as non hobbyist gamers. And Nadeviler is absolutely something that I can put in front of, of that crowd. And people will have a, a, a decent experience, especially if they're hobbyist gamers and they haven't played it a whole bunch. But when you compare it to other Comparatively simpler, uh, simple auction games. Again, we're just talking about the base game here. We'll move on to the expansions in a moment. I'm thinking about things like Furnace. I'm thinking about things like Money by Rainer Knitzia, or indeed half a dozen other games by Rainer Knizia. Uh, or I'm thinking about uh, even you know games like Archaeo Society, which is ar- arguably an auction in a number of ways. Uh, it, it just j- the thing you're bidding on isn't as interesting. You, you don't really care about what happens there. The exception is the Heroes. Which is kind of a double-edged sword. Because once you have equal ranks, say once you have one of each of the five colors, or then again when you have two of each of the five colors, then again once you have three, which sometimes doesn't happen, often one or two is where you top out, you get to take a hero. That part adds some tension. Suddenly you do care about those random other cards that might not be consequential. It's like, oh, this is a crappy warrior, but I need to do warrior, so I'll take it now. The problem there is that, as Walker would say, this is where the flow goes to die. Because part of the problem is that Nadavalear is a language-independent game, and there's a whole bunch of different heroes, and the iconography, although fine, is not nearly good enough to let you infer what the heroes do unless you're reading the reference sheet. So you're passing around the rulebook. Everyone, when someone gets their hero, they just sit there and they read the text effects of about ten different heroes, and everyone's sitting there waiting for the thing to happen. And it's... A cool toy you get to get, and that part is great, and I enjoy the variety of heroes. There's one that is controversial. We'll talk about that in a moment, no doubt. But the heroes add the much-needed flavor and texture to what you're auctioning at the expense of game flow and strange complexity. And so it's this awkward middle where I feel like neither is perfectly satisfying.
0: I think those are with with early plays. I think after... If the same group, I guess it's hard because it has to be the same group. If more people get familiar with it, I think the heroes will be much quicker. But when you double down, we're going to get into the expansion soon. But when you add all the expansions, they're even more so on yeah. top of that. A ton of front-loaded rules that will really bog the game down.
1: Spread across multiple references once we get into the expansions. We'll get there in just half a second. But I I, I would, I agree with you. By the time you've played Nadevelir about half a dozen times you absolutely get a sense for what the heroes do, and you get a sense for your preferences and, and which ones make sense in what contexts. But I think by that point is when, for me, the sense of repetition about the how uninteresting the rest of the card sets in. And so it's an awkward, again, it's an awkward balance. The, the, the trick with the, the Dabalier is I never feel like it's firing on all cylinders, which is the problem. I never feel like it reaches its full potential. I always feel like there's a strange set of constraints holding it back.
0: Uh, so let's talk about the first expansion. Let's talk about Thing Thingvalier. All right, it adds the camp, which has artifacts and mercenaries and more heroes. Yeah, so when you win a tavern, when you win the bid
1: in an area, instead of taking one of the cards there, you can instead go to the special other area and take one of the cards that from a separate deck. So, one of the reasons why I find it so interesting is, number one, it finally starts to give some evocation of the norse mythological theme right because nominally we haven't even mentioned this yet the devil is about recruiting an army of dwarves to go fight the dragon fafnir and a lot of the you know big ticket gleipnir and and, and all uh mjolnir all the other like big ticket uh 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 norse mythological artifacts find their way into this other camp and that part I thought was kind of cool... ...despite the fact, I will point out... ...none of the text is actually on the cards... ...you have to go check the reference sheets... ...so now there's two reference sheets you got to juggle. And many of the cards are mercenaries... ...which are interesting... Uh, ...but not complicated at all... ...so that part's great... They're, just, ...they're dual suited... ...and you determine what suit they are... ...at the appropriate scoring moment. That part I think is great... ...gives you a little bit of flexibility... ...allows you to break from th- those rigid notes... ...of specialization that we talked about... ...but by the same token... You can't use them to recruit early heroes, and so there's a bit of a trade-off there. The Mercenaries, I think, are fine. The biggest problem for me, in terms of the Thavalier expansion, is that it is literally an expansion that is over there. It is literally a set of cards that's off to the side. And so, I find, even relatively experienced Nadavalier players, ignore the crap out of the thing Valier cards even when it is so obviously in their interest because it's you know here they are they're bidding they're putting their bid on this tavern and then they win that tavern and they've already thought about the card they want there and it is so easy to forget to
0: look over to the other part of the table where this other stuff is sitting yeah it's like uh, cuz i always remind it's like oh don't forget you can yep. always choose from the camp It's like oh yeah the camp <laughs> <laughs> and but and the thing is, not only is it spatially distinct, in
1: order to figure out what the cards do half the time, you need to pull out a separate rule book. And generally speaking, the gamers that we play with, partially because I think they're they're they they have a normal, healthy level of laziness, and number two, because they have such a high respect for game flow, they're not gonna stop to pull out another reference to figure out what that strange bracelet does. They're like, oh okay, I know what this green card does, I'll take this green card rather than bother holding everyone up. So, yeah, there are some interesting effects in Thingvalier, and they're so often ignored. And it's unfortunate.
0: Yeah, and it's one of these things where you're, if you know what Nadevlir is all about, I don't think it is a problem because there is downtime and during this downtime you could be looking at all of these things because there's, you know, resolving, you know, bets that you don't care about or other people are 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 trying to choose a hero. There's a lot of downtime in which you can figure out what these cards do and know and not be able to slow down the game.
1: It's absolutely true. I wish that was my, one of my frustrations when playing a thing, in person and even on board game arena is it doesn't have to be to the detriment of the game experience. You just have to just be conscious of the fact that now you're not going tavern, a tavern, B tavern, C it's that each of these taverns are in opposition to this camp. And there, there's even a, an artifact in the camp that says, You can always go to the camp if the winner of the auction doesn't go. And that was really cool. And sometimes people get it and make good use of it. But very often, as I say, the camp is ignored. And I just found it frustrating because I felt like... In a weird way, if I'm setting up the game, and again, it doesn't matter whether this is the first time they're playing the Davalier or the the third or fourth time. If I'm the only one paying attention to the camp, it feels like I'm cheating. It feels like I've got this other group of toys that only I get to play with, and everyone else is stuck with these boring cards. And whether I win or lose, to be frank, it just feels exploitive. And so, (laughs) it was just disappointing. Expansions have to internalize. It doesn't matter how simple your game is. If all your stuff is over there,
0: that's a serious problem. Speaking of no, new toys, let's talk about the newest expansion, which is called Idivol. Idivol. It comes with twenty mythology cards, five giant cards, five Norse god cards, and five Valkyrie cards. Oh, you say it comes with Norse gods, Walker? I do, Mark. Is Tear there? Uh, sorry, I, sh- I I've written it. Sorry, comes with five important Norse cards. <laughs> I am going to stick to my principles. Every time I violate my principle
1: of hashtag no tier, no sale, I always, I'm disappointed. And uh, yeah, anyway,
0: moving on. So I enjoyed this expansion as well. What it does is it utilizes the middle, I think maybe through gameplay, they thought it was more important to do the middle row. So, for the first two rounds of the first... We didn't really talk about that. There was two phases to the game. But anyway, for the first few rounds of the first phase, you're going to get all of these different mythology creatures, which all sort of benefit the particular color that they are. Because some of the heroes have drawbacks, so these mythological creatures will sort of compensate those drawbacks. What it introduces...
1: Is a new deck of cards. So you just focus on the on, on the monsters. That's fine. You're a monster yourself. You, you have a fundamental appreciation for them. But a new deck of cards that replaces the second tavern. So you have normal deck, special deck, normal deck for the first half of the game. And it's not even so much that there's new stuff. But first of all, it's new stuff that's that that's baked into the core game experience, which is which is great. So right away it takes a centrality and it forces you to engage with it in a way that Valer never did. But the other thing that it does is it introduces long-term planning and amazingly cool combos that up till this point Nadavalier has never had so for example one of the things that might happen is as you said there are these mythological creatures that reduce the pain of some hero costs are you going to get that hero you don't know yet because you have to get the monster first maybe you'll get the hero maybe you won't and maybe when it comes time to take the hero, the situation has changed and you want some other
0: hero instead. That's fine. You got to roll with it. And then there's these really cool Valkyries as well, which sort of give you a direction to go in because there's all, there's sort of like almost like quests, right? It'll be like you get to go up on this scale every time you get a hero or every time you upgrade a coin, you get to slide down. So it has a sort of like increasing points the more you do this certain thing.
1: Yeah, the Valkyries are amazing. They're, they're probably my single favorite addition to the game. Now, physically, I could imagine them being a little bit fiddly in real life because there's this card and they introduce a new tracker and every time you meet a condition, they increase in point score, uh, but sometimes to a decreasing effect. So... And this also leads to new combos. For example, in the first game I played of Eidavol, I got the Valkyrie that said, this Valkyrie is worth more points every time you win an auction. So suddenly, I cared about all the taverns all the time. There was never a time when 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 I was indifferent as to what was happening in the auction, regardless of what cards were there. But I knew I couldn't win every auction. That's impossible. So I had to try to figure out which ones I could win more cheaply than the others. And on top of that, I had the hero. And I think this is a, a, as good a time as I need to talk about the hero. There's one hero that is very controversial in our circles. And what she does is she allows you to bypass the blind part in blind bidding. Because she allows you to bid last after you've seen everyone else bid. So suddenly this combination became incredibly potent because I could, I, I didn't have to gamble about what auctions I could win. I knew right away whether I could win a given auction. And the, But setting aside whatever you think about that hero, which we'll get to, I just really liked the combination. Suddenly these these effects were working with each other in interesting ways, and you had to invest in one, not knowing if you were going to get the other to, to, to complete a particular combo or a particular chain. The giants work the same way. You buy a giant, and then the next time you get a card of a certain color, you can feed that dwarf to the giant thematically, thematic insertion here, the implication here is that you are hiring a giant, and then subsequently you hire a dwarf, and you say to the dwarf, I will take you to your office now, where office is euphemism for the gullet of a giant. Yes.
0: You give him a name tag, and yeah. you try to explain why it says food on his name tag. <laughs> it's kind of awkward, but you, know, you, you just go with it. It's like you say it's an acronym for, you know, for something but anyway the game effects are marvelous and you don't know
1: when you're going to win this co- this color card next and it's it's a lovely trade-off I all the card effects in Idaval, pretty much all of them I think are super interesting and really add a lot of color to the game of Nadavalir uh, do you have any comments that you want to issue Walker on the 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 blind bidding bypassing
0: hero before we breeze past her Not really. You've pretty well covered them all. I don't... I would rather not be in the game. Why is that? It just... It seems to take the fun out of the most interesting part of the game.
1: Yeah. Uh, I frequently buy her (laughs) because I find... I just... I like certainty. And she injects a degree of certainty. I agree with you, though. It makes me feel like I'm playing a different game than everybody else. Parenthetically, I should stress, this hero is present in the base game of Nadavaliar, so it's kind of baked into the design. I certainly know that if Huey had his way, he would literally take the card out of Nadavaliar entirely, just so that nobody could ever get it. He strongly objects to her presence. She's certainly the most different of all the other heroes. The other heroes don't do stuff that, that wild, but anyway...
0: And we didn't talk about the, the, the god cards. You get a token with them, and they do one very powerful thing once during the whole game. Very cool. Well, I mean, as cool as you can be if tear's not there. True.
1: Yeah, every card. I love every card in Eidival. Honestly, if that kind of design, aesthetic, and philosophy had been in the card set from the start... I think Nadavalier would have been a towering achievement in terms of of light bidding games.
0: Well, that's what I mean. Would it still be light, right? Because that's an awful lot of front-ended information, right? We We coasted into it because we knew everything already, but I I can imagine what it would be like to get all of that information all at once would be kind of rough. And
1: that's the other problem. If you play Nadavalier all in, you have two serious problems that I think undermine... Again, Nadavali are working at cross-purposes, not really able to manifest its, its potential, kind of being in an awkward middle. Number one, you're starting to talk about an awfully expensive product, right? You're talking about $80 MSRP for a light auction game. That's rather more than I'd be willing to pay normally. Just it's the nature of the beast. Expansions tend to be more expan- expensive than you know comparable amount of material into a base game. It's just the way things are. Number two, you're now talking about three sets of reference materials on text-independent cards that you have to cross-reference. There's one for the camp that's over there. There's one for the second tavern that's over there. There's one for the heroes that are over there. And oh, by the way, there are also these special cards that are attributed to me, which is fine. Nothing is particularly too complicated. It just starts to get a certain degree of cumbersome, both in terms of information load and in terms of how that information is being presented. And it's it, it, it ends up being as cumbersome as a
0: much heavier game. Yeah, I, I did a complete swing. The first time we played it with all the expansions, I was like, this is this is garbage. It's awful. It's like it, t- it takes this simple bidding, quick game and turns it into something that it's not. And then the second time we played it, I was like, I'll never play this any other way. Except for all these <laughs> expansions.
1: Well, and this is where once again, board game arena comes into the chat because both of these problems that I've articulated disappear completely in the board game arena implementation. Number one, it is free. And number two, you can mouse over any card and it will tell you what it does.
0: The most important number three, Mark, is it keeps the score for you.
1: Yes. And I was about to say, not only is it going to keep the score for you and tally everything up, but it is also just going to show you next to, say, the purple and green cards, what the bidding scale looks like. What the, Sorry, what the scoring scale looks like. What every incremental card is worth. So you can make these decisions intellectually. Now... The great thing about the scoring, when Eidavol is included, is you have the brutally calculational nature of the core cards, coupled with an interesting hodgepodge of of different heuristically calculated effects from the Eidavol cards. And that's exactly where I love Euros to be, right? Not everything is brutally calculational, but some things you can calculate, and other things you kind of have to mm, hope that you get the next thing to complete the combo, or kind of enter a sort of gestalt of heuristics of trying to figure out where you are. figuring out. The score of one of the past couple of my tableaus in Idaval in real life, oof, that would be rough because normally, again, in the game of Nadavolo, you've got these five columns of dwarves. That's the base game. You might have a couple of cards off to the side in what's called your command area. In the past couple of games of Idaval I played, not all of not all the time I've been successful. I'm not claiming this is optimal play. I'm just saying this is the way that I like to play. I've had like one or two dwarves of each of the colors and then an incredibly huge stack of toys. (laughs) Some of which had scoring effects, some of which had conditional scoring effects, some of which didn't score at all, some of which just did weird things. And I was looking at it about halfway through the game and figuring, I would never want to calculate this in real life. Oh my goodness.
0: So true. There are some after, also some other things that came out after the fact. There's the Royal Treasure of Nadevelir deluxe box, right? Where you get, really nice poker chips for all the the betting coins and you get nice card sleeves for all your cards with like different art which looked very interesting and now they also have a playmat mark ooh, a playmat you got to have the playmat well the base game
1: was was very visually charming it had a sort of uh, f- uh, cardboard stained upon which you put the different coins added a little bit to setup but it wasn't a big deal. And it let everyone know what coins were available because the upgrade system for your coins in Nadavaliar is very clever. You know, you fuse two coins together, you add the three and the seven, you get the ten. But if the ten isn't available, you go up until the next one's uh, present. And so sometimes you can have a pretty good masterstroke if you time things correctly or if you're just incredibly fortunate. And so the components have always been very nice. And again, when I complain about the cost of Nadavaliar all-in... I'm not saying that, it, that any individual thing is unreasonably priced, it's just that things add up, and both the intellectual load as well as the economic load make me wonder at sort of my preferred version of Nadavalier, which, which is to say with both expansions included, and then I, by the time you get there though, I'm left wondering if it's, it's all worth it, and by and large, where I'm currently sitting is to say, not unless it's on Board Game Arena is it worth it. True.
0: Just quickly, it's not a big deal, but there's yet another rule set thrown on. There's a whole halftime show during the game where whoever has the most in certain color is going to get yet another benefit that you're going to have to look up in the book. But anyway. And I like uh, that
1: because there's a bit of tension, but it is yet another reason why the second half of the game feels flat in comparison to the first half of N'Davalier.
0: So I will play Nadavlier anytime. It's quick to play. The setup's not that onerous. It's just a deck of cards. You play it out and then you start bidding. I enjoy Nadavaliar, especially on Board Game Arena. Where's my check?
1: <laughs> I am willing to play Nadavaliar in any configuration if it's what someone wants to play. I, again, these these frustrations are largely what I... Uh, not because I think it makes Nadavaliar a bad game. It's just that I feel like it's not reaching its full potential. It's got so many good things that it just can't quite make it that extra step. And with The all-in experience on Board Game arena, I think, is the ideal way to play. And honestly, it kind of makes me wish that there was sort of a Nadavaliar 2nd edition that had some of those design precepts of Eidavol. Because seeing those effects and seeing those combos and seeing what can happen with a good card set really makes me appreciate the system so much more. And it's a shame that it can't all come together in the package that I want it to be. That is Nedavilir and its two expansions, Eidavol and Thingvilir. Thank you very, very much for joining us here at So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information at sowronggamescom contact. We read everything you send us and we we'll back to you if we can. Thank you so much for having decided to spend time with us. We really appreciate it. And we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Biggin. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.